Elaine Lee, and you're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look on American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. This is our final episode of the season, and we're excited to end it on a high note. Today we're bringing you an in-depth discussion with CNN's chief Washington correspondent, Jake Tapper. Mr. Tapper began his career in journalism in the late 90s, working for the Washington City Paper and Salon, hosting CNN's Take 5, and contributing to The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The LA Times. He began working for ABC News in 2003, eventually becoming their senior White House correspondent. In 2012, he moved to CNN, where he hosts the weekday show The Lead with Jake Tapper, as well as CNN's Sunday political show State of the Union. In 2012, Mr. Tapper published The Outpost, an investigative book about American troops and a deadly battle that took place at Combat Outpost Keating in Afghanistan. The Outpost was met with critical acclaim and widely praised for its gripping and accurate portrayal of American service members. It is now being developed into a major motion picture starring Scott Eastwood and Orlando Bloom, scheduled to come out later this year. We spoke to Jake about his book, the relationship between journalism and the military, and how to bridge the civil-military divide. Jake Tapper, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we've been doing this podcast on modern civil-military relations in America, and many of the conversations we've had have revolved around the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, When each of those wars broke out in 2001 and 2003, you, Jake, were already working as a fairly established political journalist, and we were wondering if you could talk about what it was like to cover those wars from your perspective. Sure. So I, I mean, I guess I, looking at my um, career uh, as a journalist, I would say there, there are basically three different phases that I went through when it came to covering these wars. One was I worked for Salon.com, which was a left-leaning news website. It's It was a different than what it is now, um, where I pretty much was able to write whatever I wanted as a just a, a national and political journalist. And that era was very much, I was able to just be skeptical of the call to war um, because Salon was naturally skeptical of, of President Bush uh, a, a after he won. And so, I, I mean, I just, you know, I did a lot of stories about uh, allies and others questioning the claims of weapons of mass destruction, skeptical coverage about the so-called coalition of the willing, and and the like. I have a very vivid memory of being with Howard Dean in 2003, I think, when Colin Powell was testifying before the UN. He was being besieged with phone calls from political reporters. Don't you don't you believe it now? Don't you believe it now? And Howard Dean, who was a skeptic of the war in Iraq, did not understand the way, but it, the way that the political journalism world was reacting, which was really interesting and insightful to be there to see that. The second period, I would say, was when I was at ABC News. 
and I would uh, actually go to war zones. I went to Iraq and covered that war uh, at the from the ABC News compound, which was not in the green zone. Uh, and then I also went to Afghanistan. And the Afghanistan uh, coverage, I, I got as uh, I went twice, once with President Obama just on Air Force One into Bagram and, and back. And the other time I was embedded and I got as far into country as a, what is what was then a forward operating base Bostik, although right now I guess I think it's been handed over to the Afghans as of now. Uh, but that was in Kunar province in uh, the east of the country. And then, then that part overlaps with the third section, which is since I wrote the book, The Outpost, about Afghanistan and my life covering the war since then. I have not been overseas covering the wars since I went to Afghanistan researching the, the book, The Outpost, and also the other coverage I did for ABC News at the time. It's tough, actually, when you're an anchor because you can't disappear for three days and then emerge, you know, in Afghanistan or or. Iraq or wherever, I, I, I do miss it. I would like to go back at some point. But that's basically the, the coverage. And I would say writing the book, The Outpost, really opened my eyes to a whole world of military and, and related coverage. So tell, tell us a little bit, though, about your observations or your impressions in Baghdad and Afghanistan when you went there as a journalist. Well, they were very different. Obviously, the wars are very different to cover, um, uh, mainly uh, because Iraq you know, it, it was, it's very urban and the, and the war is being fought in, in for a lar- to a large degree in cities. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people talk about the Battle of Fallujah, Fallujah is a city or it was a city. Mm-hmm. I don't know the cha- I don't know what shape it's in now. So, you know, we, we would be just in the ABC News compound. And when I say compound, it was just a house that we shared with NPR. And, you know, we had guards there, but it was just in a neighborhood in Baghdad. And you know, a, there would be a, a bomb would go off, you know, an IED would go off and a block away. And, you know, that would that would be that would be what was going on. And and uh, this is 2005, somewhere in there, so 2005, 2006. So it was right at a period in the war when it seemed as though a civil war was happening. Mm-hmm. NBC News, I remember, had made the editorial decision to call it a civil war, mm-hmm. which I don't know how well that decision looks in retrospect, but but at the time it certainly felt like it was potentially going to be a Sunni Shiite civil war. Uh, Afghanistan, obviously, completely different. First of all, more than two competing tribes or sects, as it were. And when I landed in Kabul, a bomb went off, had just gone off and killed a bunch of Americans in a in a motorcade of some sort. But obviously, the Taliban presence and the insurgent presence, because it's not just the Taliban, is all over the country. And most of that country is not urban centers. Most of that country is, uh, geographically, is just, just in mountains in the east and flatlands in the, in the center in the west. And, and just a very different kind of warfare, completely different warfare. So you reported on these events, the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, as a political journalist. But later on in your career, you took a deep dive at one specific narrative from the war in Afghanistan. You wrote this book, The Outpost, which talked about not only a deadly battle at combat outpost Keating in Afghanistan, but also the history leading up to the creation of the outpost there. Your book has been very well received. It's soon to be a major motion picture, and it's been praised for its realistic portrayal 
of service members and of veterans. For our listeners who may not have read The Outpost yet, we were wondering if you could give us a brief overview of what it's about and why it was important to you to tell this story. So my son, Jack, uh, was born on October 2nd, 2009. And one day later, October 3rd, 2009, this remote outpost called Combat Outpost Keating that I'd never heard of before had about just over 50 U.S. troops were there, was overrun by somewhere between three and 400 insurgents, Taliban, at the crack of dawn. And it was the deadliest day for the U.S. in Afghanistan that year, 2009. Uh, eight American uh, service members were killed that day. And I can't really tell you why I was compelled on this journey beyond the fact that there was something in that week when I was sitting with my wife in the hospital and holding my son, Jack, and watching on TV the story of these eight other sons taken from this earth, that there was something in that mo moment that was very poignant to me. There was a mystery about it all. Everybody was reporting that the co that cop Keating shouldn't have been there, that it was... Um, you know, it was built at the bottom of three steep mountains, 14 miles from the, the Pakistan border. You know, who would put a camp there, et cetera. And so, and I never really understood. No one ever explained why they put a cop there. No one explained it. But for some reason, I, it just like stuck in my craw. And when the guys got back, I read as much as I could about it. And there wasn't a lot. And when the guys got back, the guys from 361 Cav, the following June, because even after this horrible day, they still had to serve another six, seven months in Afghanistan. I started calling them and I was just set on this journey to find out what happened. And I pitched it as a book. Originally, it was just going to be about the troops that were there in 2009. But then other uh, troop deployments that had been there, the, the cop had been built in 2006, other troop deployments that had been there reached out and said, I will, I know you're, I read that you're writing this. I want you to know why we built that cop there. The guys from 371 Cav who served there in 0607, they wanted me to know why, they wanted to answer the question, why would anyone put a cop there? And then other people heard that I was doing this, and so they reached out too. Uh, so ultimately, you know, there were four years of deployments and four different companies, four different troops to, to profile, and it became this big book, and it, and it became a way of trying to understand the war in Afghanistan by just looking at this one cop, why it was built, what they achieved there, if anything, and why it was ultimately abandoned and destroyed. And in that sense, it's kind of wrote itself, just because the stories were there, the natural arc that one looks for in any book was there. You know, they built it, things were great, then things were horrible. Uh, and then... Um, and, but it, was, it remains, to this day, the most meaningful uh, journalistic experience uh, I've ever had. What do you mean by that? Like, how, how did it change, um, or what did you learn from it? Well, I mean, look, I'm a civilian. My grandfather served uh, in the Navy during World War II, and I lost a great uncle in the Navy, in the Air Force in World War II, and a different great uncle served as a CB during World War II. But after that, Nobody in my family uh, served. My father-in-law served in Vietnam uh, in the Air Force. He was a, a, an MP. But I never served. And while I always respected those who did, it wasn't, I didn't understand it. It didn't have, have 
just in the ignorance that I had about it, it didn't have much meaning to me because I knew intellectually what it was, but I, I didn't understand fully the sacrifice and commitment that it takes. And the experience of this book and doing more than 200 interviews and talking to service members who live there and talking to people who lost loved ones and hearing all their stories and, you know, having very brave men cry in front of me, telling their stories, uh, encountering what it means to have survivor's guilt, encountering what it means to have post-traumatic stress, not just as things I'm reading about, but as things I'm experiencing through other people that I'm having, you know, a relationship with or having a conversation with, just opened my eyes to this, mm. to, to what it is that the 1% does for the other 99% of us. And I mean, I think that, you know, since then I've become much more involved in military related charities and much more involved in using my journalistic platform and Twitter feed and anything else to bring attention to the stories of veterans and service members covering PTS um, and the like. And so, I mean, it's just it's just changed my life in a way that that no other story has. I mean, I've, I've had meaningful experiences covering all sorts of things, but that definitely just was a life changer. So even though you yourself didn't have any military background or military experience, this was an opportunity for you to really engage with the people who are in the service and to become really invested in the military as an institution. And almost in a way to be, yes. Um, which is not to say, of course, by the way, that that means that like I am unquestioning of military decisions or, or you know, where generals or politicians send young men and women or the things that young men and women do in battle that are sometimes not wonderful things. But yes, and also to be kind of an ambassador uh, between the two uh, groups to try to explain to the 99% what the 1% is going through and to try to sometimes ask questions of the 1% on behalf of the 99%. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, and also just to do what I can to, to you know, raise attention or awareness about some of the issues that, that veterans and service members go through. One of the, something that was really exciting for me was one time we got a regulation change. They had, the, the Pentagon, this is during the Obama years, the Pentagon had changed the way that people in the military could be reimbursed for trips. They were trying to discourage colonels from going on too many junkets for like five months. Mm -hmm. And so they, they stopped reimbursing uh, at rates that were comparable to what people were paying. Well, this ended up hurting the caregivers of service members who were still in the military, whose caregivers were covered under the same rule and regulation and would, you know, and no longer were being reimbursed for housing at, at, at 100%, it was, you know, 25%. And it was inadvertent. The Pentagon didn't mean to affect caregivers. They typically think of caregivers as working, you know, you know how complicated this is about when you're wounded and you're still in the army and then you're wounded and then you're you're out of the army, then it's two, it's completely two different departments. It's mm -hmm. the Pentagon versus the VA and right. it's you know this better than I do. But in any case, we got the rule changed so the caregivers didn't have to deal with this bureaucratic uh, snafu. So that was exciting. So in, in 2009, when the battle at Combat Outpost Keating took place, there was also a difficult political decision-making process going on about the strategy in Afghanistan. It's something we've talked a lot about on this podcast with General McChrystal and David Axelrod. What connections did you see between the on-the-ground events that happened in your book and the high-level political debate that was going on in Washington at the time? Well, there were, there, there, there were residual effects um, because uh, you can't escape it. 
when there's a lot of stuff going on at the time. Okay, when the when the colonel and the lieutenant colonel with 361 Cav came in that spring, uh, that May, to uh, RC East, and the lieutenant colonel Brad Brown was at Fab Bostic uh, in Kunar Province, and his boss Randy George, who's now a general, was I think in Jalalabad. They came in with a plan to close a whole bunch of these cops. Now, about these cops, these the combat outposts had been put up in 2006 uh, under then Colonel, then General, and now retired General McNicholson. He was doing the best he could with what he could in 2006, which was, well, now we have this, now we're supposed to nation build. I mean, that's not how he would put it, but now we're supposed to nation build, but we have a fraction of the troops and not nowhere near the number of helicopters that my friends in Iraq have. So the best I can do is set up these little fobs and, and, and cops all over RC East. The, that, those decisions that were being made under the circumstances of the Bush years, and I think uh, Bob Gates was the Secretary of Defense at that No? No, it was Rumsfeld, and then Rumsfeld was fired at the end of 06, and then Gates took over. Um, that had an effect on how they set it up. Now, in 2009... When McChrystal came in, he made a lot of changes, too. And one of his changes was to invest diplomatically, emotionally, and more with Hamid Karzai, um, who was the leader of Afghanistan at the time. And so Randy George and Brad Brown came in, the colonel, lieutenant colonel, and they were like, uh, we want to shut down these four, I think it was, cops, including Cop Keating. And McChrystal had competing considerations going on. In fact, I have a whole, I have a chapter in the book called uh, General McChrystal's Competing Considerations. And <laughs> it was about all the other things that he was trying to balance when these guys came in and tried to close the cop. And inc it included a battle going on up north that had to do with the election. And uh, Hamid Karzai didn't want U.S. troops pulling out and fobs and cops and OPs shutting down before the election. And ultimately, it was delayed closing down the cop. And then it was too late. Then the, you know, the attack came on October 3rd. But those political considerations and also just the McChrystal and the whole celebrity general thing played a part in his confidence and in what he did and in how he made decisions over there. And I'm not second guessing what he did. I'm just laying out all, you know, the reason I put in the whole chapter, his competing consider, um, considerations, there were a lot of service members and their families who were mad at McChrystal. Why didn't you, they found out later that he, George and Brown wanted to shut down the cop and he wouldn't let them. And why wouldn't he? Well, these are, I wanted to explain his considerations. I'm not saying that they were right or wrong, but uh, it certainly played a role. Chicago. The Windy City, the city of broad shoulders, the second city, is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland. We had a previous guest on our show, um, Chris Marvin, who is the founder of Got Your Six. Oh, great group, yeah. And he touched on this stereotype 
in society that uh, veterans and service members are, are these broken people with post-traumatic stress. Um, and as a result of that stereotype, society often either just has pity on these people, gives them charity, or just has low expectations for them and their ability to function in society. How do you, in your writing and in your advocacy, approach those issues? Well, it's complicated. I mean, you, you, again, you guys know this better than I do, but it's like saying all service members are conservative. I mean, you know that's not true. I mean, uh, certainly not among the officer corps, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's everything's complicated. And I know service members now who are still working things out. And I don't know that I would be any different, you know. And I know service members that seem fine and they've moved on and they're working hard. And, you know, I'm sure they have some bad memories here and there, but generally speaking, they're, they're, they're moving forward. And so I know not to stereotype about any of this stuff. Cause it's, I know some extremely conservative veterans. I know some extremely liberal veterans and in the same way that they run the gamut politically, they run the gamut emotionally. You guys know this, that, a rough estimate of how many people join the military because they have troubles already and they go into the military to try to get their head on straight or because some judge somewhere said, well, you're either going to prison or you're joining the military and they end up joining the military. I mean, that's a factor too. Sometimes some people enter the military with issues. That's something that we don't talk about often, but sometimes, you know, the car is, is, uh, is, is broken before it leaves the lot. And so I, I, I just know that every veteran's different and just to be aware of these things. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't ask people, you know, did you ever kill anybody? I mean, like I know what not to ask, but generally speaking, other than stupid questions not to ask, uh, I, I just assume everybody's different and, and uh, take it from there. There's a wide range of people who have served and it's important to, when giving a realistic portrayal to have those, those realistic aspects in it. Yeah, totally. But by this, I mean, and also it's, 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 it's complicated. It's a complicated issue right? because, you want to be sensitive, but again, you don't want to assume that every veteran is like a wounded sparrow and needs to be treated gingerly. And, you know, it's, it's as adults, we're able to like comprehend nuance, but mm-hmm. sometimes in the current political battles and discussions, things, things, you know, get stereotyped or generalized or they're made black and white. And, and obviously there's a world of nuance, especially when it comes to people who fight in war. So shifting gears a little bit to talking about your current line of work as a journalist and as someone who reports on military affairs, there's a concern from scholars in the civil military affairs community that the military is becoming less transparent. What do you as a journalist make of that relationship between the press and the military? The military is becoming less transparent. And, you know, it, it was pretty opaque before. And, you know, I have a lot of regard for General Mattis. But I will say he did not help in this regard because there were very few, uh, if any, briefings. Um, I mean, of all people, Rumsfeld was, you know, Ellison's invisible man compared to uh, compared to to Mattis. Um, And again, I have tremendous regard for him on any number of levels, but that is not one of them. Yeah, it's it's opaque. And, you know, I think that um, there is a natural distrust of the media by the military and i think probably a lot of that dates back to vietnam and i get it but uh, i can just tell you from my job as a journalist and also 
writing the book, The Outpost, where I was trying to, you know, at the time, nobody had heard of Cop Keating. People now know it a little bit better. Two of the guys there uh, have been awarded the Medal of Honor. There have been books written about it, including mine, but also Clint Romache, one of the Medal of Honor awardees, wrote a book called Red Platoon. My book's being made into a movie. I think his might be made into a movie as well. There have been other books. Dan Rodriguez wrote one. Anyway, my only point is nobody had heard of it, and I was just trying to bring attention to this cop and this horrible battle. And, you know, the Pentagon was not cooperative. They were not. I had to file FOIAs. There's not, you know, they, they were ignored. The only way that I could get... What are, what are, what are af, after-action reports called? Ten sixes or something? We don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. I forget what the term is for. Um, but they're, they're after-action reports, I, I only got them from family members uh, who were given them. But like, you know, I, I didn't, the, the Pentagon did not hand them over, uh, even though they were public enough to hand over to family members. So I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been saying this for a long time. I mean, I, I think the Pentagon, one, there is, a, there is a problem in this country of the chasm between those who serve and those who enjoy that service, but do not. Most of us, the 99% of us, there is a chasm between us. And I'm trying to bridge it, but the Pentagon, in my view too often is pulling up the drawbridge is, is not helping the dialogue and now there are exceptions to this there are people who are friendly there are pas who are helpful but as a general rule um i mean i think it's, it's been more than a year since the pentagon had a had a an on-camera briefing um i think gene simmons spoke from the podium more recently at the pentagon more recently than than a pentagon spokesperson or the secretary of defense right. so I don't know. So what what steps can we take to improve that relationship between the press and between the military? Is it just that the Pentagon needs to hold more press briefings or is there anything else we can I mean, I think the the, the, the Pentagon needs to hold more press briefings, but also I just think the, the 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 bureaucracy of the Pentagon is very difficult to figure out who you're supposed to talk to if you're covering any sort of thing. But like for instance, um I mean, do you think the public has any idea that President Trump just authorized one thousand service members sent to the Middle East as a response to Iran? I mean, I, I don't. We've mentioned it on air, but I mean, there isn't a lot of detail about where they're going or what they're going to do. And I mean, I think that I understand operational security. I mean, we don't want to like be putting anybody in harm's way, but there just isn't a lot of sharing of information. The the uh, I mean, think about that horrible ambush in Niger a few years ago. Four American service members died. It wasn't just the public members of the House and Senate on relevant committees, the Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Foreign Relations Committee, they didn't know that we had more than a, a thousand troops uh, uh, in Niger. Uh, in, I mean, it's just, there just is so little information shared that uh, I think it, it, it also harms this relationship between the, the 1% and the 99%. So there are people in the military who are okay with the fact, obviously, they're okay with the fact that the DOD is being less transparent with the public and that the Pentagon hasn't held press briefings in about a year because sometimes people feel, you, you mentioned the distrust earlier, um, people feel like journalists and news organizations um, just inevitably spin things into a partisan narrative and want to give things a hyper-political context. Um, what, what do you make of that argument? Well, look, I've been covered too. And I get that not all coverage is what you want and what you like. And, you know, we all want our 
to be portrayed at our best, uh, on our best day, doing our best thing, and 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 the media doesn't necessarily always focus on that. And I, you know, my, I do that for a living, but also I have been victim to the wrong word, but I have been subject to it, and I get it. But I don't think that's an excuse. First of all, service members in the military work for the public, and the way that our American system is set up is to have a free and independent press writing about what people in power are doing. And certainly, you know, it's not just U.S. senators and presidents who are people in power, people with guns who are sent, you know, thousands of miles away to do things in our national interest are also people in power. And it's our job to cover it. And as long as we're, you know, look, there's always a back and forth when it comes to people being covered and how how they're being covered. And I think that's fair. And that give and take is fair. And if people are bad journalists lying misrepresenting sure i mean then that that's one thing but i think it's very important that that kind of thriving independent press coverage of military participation um deployments conflicts i think that's essential i mean i think that if the mill i think i think it's an important part of i mean if i I get that uh, I don't want to state that the war in Vietnam was a mistake, but I mean, I will say that it's very obvious uh, from our coverage and what's emerged later that people in the, certainly in the Johnson administration, but let's just say in the Johnson and, Ke- and Nixon administrations, knew that the war could not be won the way that they were hoping to win it. And they kept that from the public. And what ultimately turned the tide for the public to turn against these generals who were lying to the public and sacrificing all these men and some women in service of this lie, what turned the tide was media coverage of the war and facts about the war coming to light. Not that the service members serving there were bad, but whether or not the mission they were on was futile. And I think that that's a, it's, it's, it protects the soldiers as much as the generals want to protect the soldiers. Um, sir, it's uh, D-Day, not me-day. The lead starts right now. Recently, you did a segment criticizing the president for an interview he gave in front of the military cemetery in Normandy. More than 9,380 men are buried at Normandy, which today was the site of the ceremony honoring those lost in the fight for freedom. Now, you might think that such a day and such a setting would compel an American president, a president who himself gave a strong address to mark the occasion of the memorial, to resist from engaging in petty politics on this day and on those grounds. But you would be wrong. Why was that something you felt you needed to speak out on? It really hurt. Uh, it really hurt me. I mean, it really offended me. Um, I mean, like I said, my grandfather served in World War II. My great uncle Edwin is buried somewhere, I think, in France. Um, he was a tail gunner. He was shot down by the Luftwaffe in World War II. I mean, the, the idea of people who die in battle for us—that that is sacred ground—is something that I was raised thinking, believing. I, I don't think that's particular, particularly unique. Uh, anybody who's ever been to Normandy certainly can. And just have you have either of you ever been there? It's unbelievable. It's just this grave right near the beach. It's it's crazy. And um, I don't know. I just couldn't even believe it. I just couldn't even believe that that with the you know with World War II heroes 
literally in the dirt just yards away in the same shot that you know on the 75th anniversary of of, of d-day mm-hmm. that 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 would happen I, I just it's still it's still is i still can't fathom it i still can't fathom i mean i don't i took my kids to a military cemetery for um memorial day and you know i left i i left my phone in the car mm-hmm. you know and um and then i had to go back and get it so i could take a picture mm-hmm. but i mean that that's how you know i think most and i think most people are like that it really bothered me and that you know it's it's so funny also to have in this era, like the idea that I would be offended by that, I don't think that's a particularly liberal feeling. Right. You know, I, I think it's a particularly American feeling. And um, it just, uh, I just felt it had to be said. And because I feel like so many people have just gotten so numb to basic decency and norms that have been eroded uh, in this time, not just by President Trump, by the way, but mm-hmm. uh, that one certainly by him. Do you see this as a that instance, um, other instances, as part of a, a trend towards greater politicization of the military? I mean, it's certainly a concern. I mean, you, you hear about the White House being going around the Secretary of Defense and reaching out right to the Navy and asking them to make sure that the USS John McCain is not in President Trump's uh, line of sight while he's overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, you know, the order, it, does, it appears, was not carried out. The politicization of the military in that instance was a concern. And I think then acting Secretary of Defense Shanahan said so at the time, said he wanted to make sure it didn't happen. I mean, then there was a, a flyover, I think, recently when the president or prime minister of Poland was nearby. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's just and then there's this parade. Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of part and parcel of the same thing. So we've been talking about journalism as an institution, the military as an institution, and the military as an institution enjoys a very high level of confidence, almost an exalted status in society. What do you make of that? Do you find that to be good or bad? I know earlier you said you're not unquestioning of military and the military decisions. I mean, I think it can be, I think it can be um, good and bad. I mean, you know, we want to have reverence for people who you know, who, who make the ultimate sacrifice and we want to have respect for people who put themselves in harm's way for the, for the United States. So I think that's good. I think it's a lot of talk when you look at how too often we treat our veterans or our gold star families. They're not often treated the way that we speak about them. I do think that there is a tendency of generals to think, well, all we need is X number more men, and then we can do this mission. And that's part of the that's part of a good thing about how the military thinks, which is they are confident and determined that they can accomplish anything. Uh, will you know, and are willing to carry out any any order, not any order, but almost any order. But by the same token, I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why we're still in Afghanistan, where you know, I mean, we've been fighting that war literally since two thousand one. So, you know, it will be 18 years. It's the longest war in the history of the United States because there is this continued belief that the United States can accomplish anything, even if the populace doesn't want us to accomplish it. So I, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think it has a, I think it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes I think it's, it's not necessarily such a good thing. I mean, I don't, 
you know, you can go back and see things that people were saying about the military and what how much longer we needed to be in Afghanistan before this would be accomplished. And any number of dates were predicted that by such and such a date, the Afghans would be ruling themselves and they wouldn't need us anymore and blah, blah, blah. And those dates have long come and gone. So we have a lot of classmates here at the Harris School who want to go into the policymaking field and maybe not directly related to the military or national security, um, but they may be influential someday at the you know state or federal level. Um, what is one thing you wish they knew about the military? I guess just what I just said, mm -hmm. that there, there is a tendency in the military to say, absolutely, we can do that. Uh, and then, you know, figure out how to do it mm -hmm. uh, without necessarily factoring in, A, why should we be doing it? And B, are you sure we can do that? I mean... I, I just think that there is a confidence among the military that is its strength and its weakness, mm -hmm. and the policymakers should know that. Is there anything you want ordinary citizens to know about the military, how to help bridge the widening uh, civil-military divide in American society? Well, I mean, I just think people should get more involved if they hear about, um, you know, veterans needing work, if they hear about a, a home going, a house being built for a, a wounded service member and some private organization has raise the funds. I'm, I'm active with a group called Homes for Our Troops that, mm -hmm. that raises money to build specially designed mortgage-free homes for the most severely disabled uh, post-9-11 veterans. So, I mean, there's that. I, you know, I still don't fully understand why there isn't more of an integrative system for veterans to figure out how to reemerge in the, you know, in, in civilian life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems to me like everything is figuring out how to deal with problems once they exist as opposed to dealing with it ahead of time mm -hmm. and, and helping people get acclimated, helping people find jobs, uh, helping people learn new skills. It just seems like it's a lot more haphazard than I, than I would think it would be. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something future policymakers can work on. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I mean, I, I tend to think of veterans as, as, you know, a group of people that, that policymakers or people running for public office wrap their arms around, you know, when they're running for office and then forget about, you know, from then on after they get elected. Well, I think that's uh, all we have for you today, Jake. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Sorry about all the beeps and uh, everything. <laughs> no, worries. no worries. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and also for everything you're doing on behalf of veterans and the troops. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Yep. Okay, bye-bye. Have a good bye. one. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. It's been an incredible experience producing these 16 episodes over the past academic year. We hope you've enjoyed joining us on this educational exploration of civil military affairs, and we hope you've learned a little bit about the military's role in our society and about closing the civil military divide. This is our final episode of the season, but we'll be back in the fall for season two. In the meantime, there might be a few summer bonus episodes coming your way. So don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haziano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. We also had a lot of support this season from mentors and colleagues from around the country, who helped us connect with guests, brainstorm interview topics, and promote our episodes. Special thanks in no particular order to 
Scott Cooper, Lieutenant Alberto Ramos, Retired Admiral Mike Mullen, David Axelrod, Samantha Neal, and the Institute of Politics, Jessica Blankshane, Paul Staniland, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Golby, Captain Mike Robinson, Ensign Michelle Tran, Ensign Yenisaw, Ensign Nate Vermel, Emma Moore, Alice Hunt Friend, Corey Shockey, Brendan Doherty, Peter Fever, Doyle Hodges, Richard Cohn, Morgan Wade, Tracy Logan, Kay Sessinger, and Brianna Keeler. Additionally, a huge thank you to all of our guests for your valuable insight on these topics. We'd also like to thank Alec McMillan and Julian Lake for their production support over the season. Sarah Claudi for her creative consulting and sometimes co-hosting, and David Raban for his editing and publishing support. This would not have been possible without you all. And thank you to the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago for giving us the resources to produce this podcast. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official position of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. See you next time.